0: Q&A with Bishop Julian Portius.
1: dear listeners, those new and those old faithful followers of ours here on Q&A, we're back with another session with Bishop Julian Portis where we get to drill him with hard questions. On the interrogation panel, we have myself, Jovina Graham, and Mr. Jeremy Ambrose.
0: And we're ready to um, question you, Bishop. So get ready, because Jovina takes no prisoners. Okay, Bishop, this is a very
1: theological topic today, so I hope you have your theology hat on. Um, I guess... What we're talking today is about salvation, which is not something that even your average practicing Catholic or Christian thinks about with much frequency, I think, these days. I think the sort of default position for many of us has been to assume that we will receive achieve salvation and we will all just wander into heaven. Do you think this is true?
2: I think that is a very commonly accepted view these days, Many people think, well, look, God is a God of love, of compassion, of mercy. And, uh, and people tend also to think that they haven't done a whole lot of terribly bad things in their life and therefore they um, will be able to, to be saved. Also, we find today that, that there is a view around that the church teaches that, um, that anybody can be saved. So you don't even have to be a, a Catholic or a Christian in order to be saved. And uh, th- this view has um, has really come into the Church in recent times, and it's quite a prevalent attitude adopted by, by many people. Now, now, there's a reason for this, and, and, and that is that in the Second Vatican Council on the document on the Church, Lumen Gentium, uh, this issue of salvation was addressed in one, in one paragraph in particular, paragraph 16, in fact. And in this paragraph... Um, there, there was comment about the fact that that people can be saved even if they are not members of the church and don't, don't know of Christ, that, that through God's grace it's possible for a person to be saved. If a person has in fact led an upright life and has sought to live as best they could according to their conscience, according to their understanding of what's right and good, then um, that's possible for them to be saved. So in other words, we're saying that somebody who does not have... The Christian faith is not immediately uh, sent to hell, if you like to put it very bluntly um, now this uh, this particular statement uh, then has um, has caused a great deal of um, of interest among people because they 've taken it up then and, and said, well, in that case um, why do we have to evangelize if if um, somebody leads a uh, a good life and um, they 're a good pagan or, or somebody who 's a member of another religion and follows that religion faithfully, then if they can be saved um, by the grace of God, well why do we need to evangelize and It actually had a very big impact on the missionary zeal of the church and we found in fact that many missionaries um, shifted their focus and if like became more involved in dialogue with the great religions or became more involved in let us bring the compassion of of Christ in in, in serving them but we won't push anybody to to, to become Catholic we won't promote the Catholic faith anyway we'll just come to uh, to show compassion and kindness to people so it took the missionary edge if you like off a lot of the work of the church so this is a really Big question for us at the present moment: Is this, in fact, the case? Does it, does it mean that um, that anybody um, can be saved, or if you like, everybody can be saved?
0: I've heard of this concept of anonymous Christianity. Would you like to explain this concept?
2: Yeah, this this idea was an idea that uh, was developed by uh, the the great German theologian Karl Rahner, and it really flows in the, if you like, a certain optimism that was adopted with regard to salvation in the light of this first part of of, Genesis, of, of chapter 16 of Lumen Gentium. And, if you like, theologically reflecting on this question, he proposed this idea of the anonymous Christian. In other words, somebody who is living a good life in the light of their own understanding, limited as they may be, and that they may not know about Christ, they may not they may not know about the church, but they're living a, a good a, a good life, and and therefore Carana said, well, maybe what we call them is an anonymous Christian. So they're not formally a Christian, but um, they are Christian to the extent to which they're living a good life, and, and so on. And, and so this was one expression of the idea that um, that uh, people. Can be saved who are not um, who don't know Christ and not members of the church, so it is a concrete theological explanation or presentation of uh, the way the first part of Lumen Gentium was interpreted.
1: Okay, so I've got another word for you. We talked about anonymous Christianity there. What about this word, apokatastasis? What what's that all about?
2: Ah, that's a that's a word that goes right back to very early centuries in the church, and it shows that this issue of salvation and the possibility of people being saved uh, who did not formally know Christ uh, has been in the church for a long, long time. This this notion of apokatastasis basically is a um, like a theological theory um, whereby uh, people believed that. In the end, when God finally brings in his kingdom, because of the grace of salvation uh, released by Christ through his death and resurrection, and because God is a God of mercy and compassion, that all those um, who have lived will, in fact, be saved. Everybody, In other words, everybody will go to heaven. In that case, even the angels, so even the devil, if you want, if you want to be very... Uh, strict about it would mean even the devil would eventually go to heaven. Now, this was promoted in uh, early centuries, and uh, uh, particular and a great theologian and a wonderful man, um, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, a mystic, uh, proposed uh, this this theory and was quite convinced about it. Many monks in the desert, who particularly those who followed teaching of Origen Origin, um, also adopted this this view, and Origen himself proposed it these were very good and saintly people they weren 't uh, crazy heretics or something but but this was something if you like it was a, there was a certain logic to it that you can understand that um, that that because salvation Christ died for all and therefore all can benefit from the salvation and secondly this focus on the mercy and uh, and kindness of God however it does run into some very real uh, problems with regard to the teaching of Christ himself. I mean, Christ was very, very clear that there would be, in the end of judgment, there would be the sheep on one side and the goats on the left. Uh, He spoke many, many times about the reality of hell and and the, the possibility of eternal separation from God. Damnation, if you want to put it that way. So... So while this theory was put forward, uh, it does seem to run quite counter to the, um, to the teaching uh, of, of Jesus himself and also the teaching that is found in, um, in, in the, the, uh, St Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 1 in particular. And I think that's a, that's a key text because St Paul in his letter to the Romans speaks about the fact that people who didn't know Christ did have a chance to know of God, if you like, through creation um, and and through just a whole under, reflection upon the nature of human life, they could come to a sense of what is true and good and right, and and therefore people can in fact um, come to a, a point of of of, um, of openness to God, openness to faith, and and this would be to a certain extent where we could say that it is possible some people who did not. Um, no Christ could be saved. So the church does teach that. However, St Paul also teaches that the fact that most people in that situation didn't live upright lives, didn't, in fact, pursue the good, the truth, and the truth. In fact, they they allowed their minds to become darkened, but they got caught up in all sorts of of, um, moral actions which were clearly wrong and and, and evil. And, And they actually lived lives which were destructive, of goodness and, and truth. And I think that's the part uh, of the teaching that, that isn't uh, understood. You see, if you look at the whole paragraph 16 in Lumen Gentium, you'll see that the latter part of that uh, paragraph actually talks about what St Paul is talking about in his letter to the Romans. It talks about the fact that while it is possible, it's also are likely to be uh, improbable, that people will, in fact, be saved. Um, where Jesus says that you those know, for those who have more, more will be expected. It's like saying that that um, that that we who have faith have a certain advantage, and we do have an advantage. We know the truth. We have the grace of God active in our lives, um, and God expects more of us. So we are to be saints. We we can't just settle for mediocrity. But it's also true that those who are not, who don't have faith and are not living under the full uh, impetus of the gospel and, and the grace of God uh, do, find it, do find it more difficult and, and, and do in fact fail. And, and, and we have to face the fact that the world around us, sadly, is so marked by the evil of, of humanity, by, the, by sin, by destruction of, of human life and human dignity, I mean, we cannot be naive about the reality of evil and the possibility of people who are not under the grace of God being able to live upright lives so that they will, in fact, be saved. So there remains an urgent um, missionary uh, uh, impetus required by the church. Um, And so what I think is very important in this question of salvation is that um, while we understand that people can be saved by the mercy of God, and that's true, who don't know Christ and haven't haven't lived in the church, but at the same time, we cannot say that all are going to be saved or the vast majority will be saved. And so the, the task of the church of bringing the truth and the power of the gospel to people's lives is as urgent as ever.
0: Well, wow, that means that we actually have a a great responsibility on our hands, being members of the body of Christ and as a church going out there to, well, to not take it so easy and and be relaxed and think, oh, everyone's going to heaven anyway.
2: That's right.
1: Well, thank you very much for this very truthful and earnest reflection on salvation.
2: We come to that uh, point in in our Q&A where we uh, just talk about some little aspect of Catholic life, and uh, I've been speaking uh, about a number of prayers that are very, very much part of our Catholic culture, and uh, just talking a little bit about them and and their origin. Uh, Are you familiar with the prayer which we often call by its Latin name, the
0: Memorare? Oh yes, Bishop, I'm familiar with that prayer, however I've just realised I've been Saying that word wrong for the last twenty-eight years, but well, that's okay. Yep. I'm familiar with the prayer. Mem- Memorare, yeah. yes. Actually, as I grew up, it was
2: my favourite Marian prayer. I used to pray it very often, and it was just the one I really loved to 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 pray. Oh. And um, the Memorare, of course, uh, its origins, like like we we're talking before about the Hail Holy Queen, um, its origins are in the Latin language. Hence the word "memorare" is the Latin word for what we call "remember," which is the mm-hmm. first word of it in, in English. So we begin by "remember our most loving Virgin Mary." So "memorare" just means "remember." It, it's it's interesting because even uh, for myself too, for a long, long time, I believed that the prayer, the "memorare," which, as I said, I loved very much and and said uh, th- through my particularly my teenage years. Um, was a a prayer that I associated with the 12th century Cistercian uh, monk and remarkable saint, St Bernard of Clairvaux. I always thought that he had composed it. St Bernard had a a very particular devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, He he spoke often and most beautifully about uh, Our Lady in a way that as I read this prayer, I just felt it was very much... The way he would pray—it was very much his prayer—and I always understood that it was um, the uh, prayer that was from Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. Just recently, I've discovered that's not the case. It, it seems more likely that it was uh, a prayer that was around, but was popularized by a certain Father Claude Bernard. And maybe because the word—his surname was Bernard—that wow. there was this idea of link with Saint uh, Saint Bernard. If you like. And uh, it seems that this particular uh, priest had learnt the prayer from his own father. So it, he learned it in the family and uh, he himself uh, used it and then he promoted it uh, himself. It's possibly part of a longer 15th century prayer. So there was a, a previous prayer that was around in Latin. It was simplified and shortened somewhat. And uh, that was a prayer that he learnt, and then he popularised it, and, um, and it's become really part of, the, again, the spiritual fabric mm. of Catholic life. But I find it a most beautiful prayer, and if I may, I'd just like to, uh, to read it out as a, as a way of just seeing what it actually says and capturing something of the Spirit that always uh, attracted me and inspired me. So it says, Remember, O Most Loving Virgin Mary... That never was it known in any age that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was abandoned. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to you, a virgin of virgins, my mother. To you I come, before you I stand, sinful and sorrowful. Do not, a mother of the Word incarnate, despise my prayers, but graciously hear and answer them. Amen. I just find it a very beautiful prayer that you feel you can come to Our Lady, you can... You fly, if like, to her protection, that you feel that you know that your your prayers will be heard and therefore I place before you in my own sinful and sorrowful state my needs and and and, and uh, asking for her intercession on, on our behalf. I find it a very beautiful prayer to pray and, again, its origins, uh, while it has been associated traditionally with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, in fact, it does come from about the 6th, 15th century, but it was popularised more in the 17th century.
1: Amazing. Well, we've gone deeper and deeper into the love of Our of our Lady, and thank you very much for sharing with us your favourite Marian devotion, Bishop.
0: You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Cordius. For more
2: episodes, visit radio.org.